It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. On Friday, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office announced that five men, members of the Jehovah's Witnesses, four from Pennsylvania, one from Florida, had been charged with sexual assault and exploitation of children. Since last October, 14 other men in Jehovah's Witnesses were charged with sexually abusing minors. David Gambacorta is a writer-at-large for the Philadelphia Inquirer doing investigative reporting. David, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. David, you've been investigating allegations of sexual abuse within the Jehovah's Witnesses for several years. Did these arrests all stem from the grand jury investigation that began in 2019? I believe that's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular case or series of allegations that prompted the creation of that grand jury? You know, they've um, the attorney general's office hasn't specified yet um, you know, which particular case um, caused them to get going on this grand jury investigation. Um, but I would I would say, you know, broadly, within the last five to ten years, uh, there have been a lot of former witnesses coming forward publicly with stories about surviving sexual abuse um, in, in Pennsylvania and across the country. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of out there and in the air. And I, I think it certainly got on the radar of the, uh, the AG's office. Mm-hmm. In your latest story, you focus in particular on one survivor, Sarah Brooks. What brought her to file suit? Her case dates back 20 years. Right. And, and at the time when, when Sarah was abused, you know, she was uh, just a teenager. Um, and, and obviously at that point, really in, in no position to even know where to begin in terms of how to get justice, how to get uh, attention or an attorney or anything like that. Um, but as, as Sarah's told me on a, a few different occasions, um, you know, her, her hope has been to just have the leaders of the organization face some sort of accountability for policy of theirs that have, you know, she believes enabled abuse um, to, to spread throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know she had attempted to sort of bring action a few years ago, and there was a, uh, a bankruptcy involving one of the defendants in her case, so that delayed things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's been, been pretty steadfast about, you know, wanting to speak out and, and wanting to bring attention not only to what happened to her, but to, to what has happened to a lot of other uh, former witnesses. Mm -hmm. When she first reported, uh, it did not get reported to authorities. Did she just go through her church or what? Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, she was, you know, Sarah was 15, and um, she initially told her parents who contacted elders from their congregation. Um, And and the witnesses have a very strict hierarchy and, and an idea of how things are supposed to go. Um, so, you know, her, her family followed that and, um, in, instead of everybody going and contacting the police, as you would, you know, sort of think would happen in that situation. Um, it, it's a, it's a very insular culture and society. And so in, instead of that happening, sort of the walls closed in around Sarah, as, as she's explained, um, you know, and, and instead of the elders saying, Hey, let's, let's get you help. Let's go to the police and get them involved with this. Um, you know, she faced retaliation and blowback for, for speaking out. Was she told don't bring negative attention upon the group? What? Yeah, there's a, a particular phrase that a lot of former witnesses have 
have told me that they've heard and and it's um basically comes down to this idea of of not bringing reproach upon jehovah's name and um i, I think those words are very powerful to people who are our devout followers um and you know i think in essence what it means is you know don't don't do anything to bring negative attention onto mm -hmm. the the organization um so you know sarah and, and her parents had heard that that phrase uttered um and I, and i think it had you know a real chilling effect mm -hmm. Is there any evidence that you found that they actually handle the allegations internally and deal with the abusers? Yeah, I think they have, you know, a, a thought out or what they feel is a, a thought out process for, for dealing with these sorts of situations. Um, you know, elders who become aware of abuse are, are you know, instructed to write down their findings and mail them to the organization's headquarters in New York, um, and also to notify they have their own legal department. Um, and, and that's supposed to start sort of a chain of events. You know, they have uh, judicial committees that are supposed to investigate these sorts of things. Um, and then they have their, their own process for discipline, which can include being disfellowshipped, essentially, you know, removed from the organization. Um, but I've, I've found, and, and you know, other reporters have too over the years, that in the 1980s and 90s, the organization would also send um, memos out to elders, instructing them to not uh, bring outsiders into these sorts of matters. You know, not to involve law enforcement and to you know, please show up at their congregation with a search warrant to not cooperate with them. Mm -hmm. David, we know that uh, from the grand jury report on abusive priests and Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania, that the abuse, the assaults went back decades. Any idea how widespread or how long the abuse has been going on among Jehovah's Witnesses? I, I think the scope of it is fairly significant um, because it's, it's certainly not just Pennsylvania. I mean, I, I've, I've read of cases all across uh, the United States, and Canada, and Australia. Um, and I think the, the length of time, you know, similar to the archdiocese, you know, you're, you're looking at, at decades and decades of uh, untold stories. Mm -hmm. David, uh, in our last minute, you report that former witnesses have been talking publicly about abuse. What do they want? I think there's a, a real genuine desire on their part for for the leaders of the organization to, to face some accountability and for, you know, all of this attention to bring about some positive change. Mm -hmm. And transparency? Definitely more transparency, yeah, for, for an organization like that, yes. And very briefly, any indications there'll be more arrests from this grand jury investigation? You know, I think the Attorney General's office hasn't come right out and said that, but the, the all indications are that, yeah, this is just the beginning of, of their investigation and more is to come. David Gambacorda is a writer-at-large for the Philadelphia Inquirer. David, thanks so much for your reporting and for joining us today. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Last month, the Pennsylvania House passed a bill that would raise the state's minimum wage to $15 incrementally by 2026. Meanwhile, here in the Pittsburgh area, Allegheny County Council voted to enact a minimum wage for county workers that would start at $18 per hour next year. County Executive Rich Fitzgerald has sued to block that measure. We're turning to an economist to learn more about how the minimum wage and where it sets affects the region. 
Felix Koenig is an assistant professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College. Welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. Great to be with you. Pennsylvania's minimum wage has been at seven twenty-five for years, the lowest compared to any of the states surrounding the Commonwealth. Are there measurable effects of Pennsylvania or any state's minimum wage being so low, the same as, I must say, the federal minimum compared to surrounding states that have higher minimum wages? Yes, that's been a popular um, tool that economists have applied to compare, say, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, where New Jersey increases the minimum wage while Pennsylvania kept the minimum wage the same. And they studied what happened to workers uh, at the border between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And what these studies have found is that employment trended pretty much in parallel. So there's no measurable impact or job losses in, in New Jersey that increased the minimum wage compared to Pennsylvania that didn't. Uh, for example, you mentioned New Jersey, but theirs is at fourteen thirteen an hour compared to Pennsylvania seven and a quarter. Uh, West Virginia, another uh, adjacent state, eight seventy five an hour, although that's going up early next year, and uh, fourteen twenty for most of New York State. So, one argument against these policy changes to raise the minimum wage is that. Many workplaces already pay above the legal wage floor anyway. For example, we saw signs in stores and uh, fast food restaurants uh, during the uh, pandemic that said starting at $12 an hour or something like that, bonuses paid. So are there really that many people in Pennsylvania making the seven twenty-five an hour? That's right. So, um, Wages have increased, and particularly in the last couple of years. That said, there's still a sizable share of the workforce that earns below $15, which is the level that the um, Pennsylvania uh, legislator wants to move the minimum wage to eventually. You've researched how workers respond to non-wage amenities, specifically looking at how people value a safe workplace amid the pandemic. Are there scenarios where a workplace amenity is more valued by workers than their pay. There's a lot of evidence that people attach high value to non-wage features, that a lot of people choose their job not just for the wage, but for other returns. And um, that's one reason why the minimum wage is not the only regulation that we have in the labor market. There's a lot of regulation about safety, and there's a lot of questions right now about working from home and schedule flexibility. At the lower end of the wage distribution, though, I think the wage is, is typically a, a bigger concern for people. A lot of these non-wage amenities feature very prominently for workers that make higher, higher wages. Felix, is there a way to apply this to hourly wage workers, or is this research exclusive to salaried employees? No, we've been researching this for, for hourly workers too, and we do find that they value amenities highly. You know, we, we sort of put the number at around the worst safety job compared to the highest safety job. Once in a deviation apart is the highest safety job is worth 30% more than the lowest safety job. So it's it's valued a fair amount, but few, job, few workers switch from a very high risk job like fishing or farming to a very low risk job like hairdressing. Um, so most people will not get this 30% perceived boost in returns. But if you were to switch from a very high risky job to a low risk job, you would you would get a, a large sort of equivalent return than compared to a, to a wage increase. 
Broadly speaking, what does your research or other research that you're familiar with say about raising the minimum wage? Does it improve a community? Yes. So uh, researchers have found that it has a large impact on earnings at the bottom end of the wage distribution, lifting wages uh, among lower earners, um, and thereby reducing inequality. I mentioned the state house passing legislation to raise the minimum wage over a few years. It goes to the Senate. It's in the Senate. You're called to testify before the Senate panel. What would you tell them about the increase of the state minimum wage and how it could impact across the board, the individual worker, the employer, the community? A big part of the current raise is just keeping up with inflation. So, you know, the minimum wage, as you said, has been at 7.25 since 2009. And as we all know, inflation has picked up in the last couple of years. So much of the increase is just keeping up with overall price levels. Wages have grown as well. So, um, you know, the, the minimum wage is now a lower percentage of the average wage. So minimum wage workers have fallen behind further. So much of this is just keeping up with the labor market. Now, what the consequences would be for employment, I think the evidence suggests that there could be some negative employment effect, but if there are, they're, they're relatively modest. And on average, workers do benefit from the higher wages. Employment losses happen in, in the lower productive end of the wage distribution. That's what we found in other settings like Germany. And that enabled workers to find jobs, higher paying jobs. So in equilibrium, on average, the number of jobs that were lost were relatively small. I think the biggest change that's being debated is actually long-term linking of the minimum wage to inflation or some other target measures. Because whatever the level is you think is right, it seems like a strange policy to let inflation or any other change in wages erode the minimum wage over time. So if you think uh, $7.25 is the right level, but inflation is 10% every year, um, it doesn't make sense to keep the minimum wage at that 7.25 level. Felix Koenig, is an assistant professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin. Great to talk to you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Before someone goes into a surgery, they'll meet with doctors and nurses to discuss the procedure and the recovery. According to the CDC, more than 48 million surgeries are performed each year, with complications developing within a month after the surgery in up to 15% of those cases. At 20 UPMC hospitals, a machine learning model was deployed to help identify patients at high risk for post-surgery complications. Dr. Amin Mahajan was the lead researcher on the study about this machine learning model. Welcome, doctor. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Doctor, how do post-operative complications vary? Patients uh, having surgery do continue to have complications. Patients who have higher risk due to their coexisting um, medical conditions, or if they are having surgeries that are inherently high risk, will tend to have different types of complications as compared to patients who have lower risk. These complications include, but are not limited to, um, uh, cardiovascular complications. Uh, they can be complications such as stroke or cerebral complications. They could be infections and they could be uh, kidney failure that occurs after or pulmonary or respiratory complications that can occur uh, after surgery. And they are fairly frequent for, for patients that are 
at higher risk and undergoing uh, more complicated surgeries. This model that uses machine learning, we'll be discussing, how do you teach it <laughs> to be able to detect these potential complications? So, Kevin, we used about 1.5 million patients uh, that had surgical care being delivered within our UPMC hospitals. They span about a time period from 2012 to about 2020 or so. We studied the uh, different patient characteristics, the types of surgeries they were having, the different social aspect demographics for these patients, social um, determinants of health. We created a machine learning model to determine what patterns led to these patients to have mortality, higher incidence of mortality, or complications. What kind of uh, postoperative complications will this machine learning model be working to prevent or at least predict and maybe help make less severe because of its uh, projection of potential serious complications? In our study, we actually focused on mortality and we focused on MACE, which stands for Major Adverse Cardiovascular and Cerebral Events. So events, adverse events that pertain to cardiovascular system, heart, uh, vascular complications, and also cerebral events such as stroke. How does it work, doctor? Uh, does the model sort of put a red flag on a chart for the surgeon, for the, the medical team to spot and then take into consideration? What? Once we created a model, we, we trained it, we tested it, and then we prospectively validated it. But we also created a, a tool, a clinical tool that's embedded within our electronic electronic health records so that as a patient is scheduled for surgery, or if a patient is seen in the surgical clinic and the surgeon wants to know what the risk is of the patient, uh, they can actually pull up that risk score in a fairly automated or on an on-demand fashion. How big of a help would you say this is to the doctor that's had to use other predictive models? But for some patients, it's extremely helpful. And as you can envision, um, many patients who might have uh, multiple medical comorbidities and having complex surgeries, and they might be uh, the information for that, those patients resides in multiple different spots within the EMR. And it's very hard for busy clinicians to be able to assimilate and integrate all that information in a short period of time. And the model takes you know, 15 seconds to be able to actually run and be able to provide them the risk. 15 seconds, you said? Or less. How would you say that this machine learning model compares to other predictive measures currently in use, whether they're developed by the American College of Surgeons or elsewhere? So firstly, you know, our model is automated. It's, it's more seamlessly integrated in clinical care. It can also provide information on an on-demand basis. So if a patient is seen in the surgical clinic, it can actually provide the risk uh, at the time of the surgical decision-making. So a patient and the surgeon can have much more informed uh, shared decision-making as part of the process. We It also relies on the information that resides only in the EMR. So we don't have to do additional tests to get that get information for that model. Now, we did compare this model with um, our, the industry standards, um, reference standard by the American College of Surgeons. And we found that uh, when tested in the same uh, cohort of population, this model was more accurate. For our patient population, it was more accurate than the uh, NISQIP uh, uh, ACS um, surgical score. 
And once a risk factor, risk factors are identified, what are the next steps? Our surgeons would actually refer these patients to our Center for Perioperative Care or any other medical teams that are managing the patients. Doctor, how does this model help patients with unchangeable risk factors, whether it's age or pre-existing conditions? For conditions that we cannot optimize, recognizing that patient might be at risk allows us to have align our clinical teams, the specialists, during the surgery, choose the right monitoring technology, both intraoperatively as well as after surgery, to make sure that we can afford the best possible outcome for these patients, these high-risk patients. Finally, doctor, what additional research or testing might be needed before this model can be used more extensively in hospitals, whether it's UPMC or other health systems across the country? Even though we use uh, a large patient population of 1.5, approximately 1.5 million patients, these are patients that represent our community. And we were careful in selecting a fairly large geography and demographics. The accuracy may not be what we've seen in in when it's applied to other patient populations in other states or uh, other communities as well. That remains to be tested, and we intend on testing that. And also, we want to train this model to predict other clinical outcomes as well. Uh, we focused uh, in this particular study on mortality and cardiovascular adverse cardiovascular and cerebral events, but we want to look at other common complications that occur after surgery, such as respiratory pulmonary complications, infection, sepsis, um, and uh, you know, kidney acute kidney injuries. Dr. Amin Mahajan was the lead researcher on a study about a machine learning model's ability to identify patients at high risk of post-operative complications. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for the opportunity to share our work. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, Amachi Pittsburgh is partnering with PPS to implement a state pilot program for scholarships to benefit at-risk students and communities with prominent high school dropout rates and incarceration rates. Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Lara Sutsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.